who got me, we got on the, on the, on the uh, motorcycle, drove off the road. And uh, if, you're, if you're familiar with, uh, with, with Bengal, you know, you had the, we had the rice paddies on one side and the raised areas in the middle and that's what we drove on. And finally we passed the rice paddies and came to a little settlement. They took me to this one family. And, uh, you know, I got, I, I, I got to be able to get through this without uh, tearing up. Um, so I met with his family and they started telling me they, they had crossed over from Bangladesh only 22 days earlier. So the things they were telling me had just occurred. And they told me about how their little plot of land, their little home and farm was invaded by a large number of their neighbors, their Muslim neighbors. And they were, they, they were thrown off. The father who was there had been beaten pretty severely. You could still see the, you know, the, the, the remnants of that beating. The, they tell me about uh, an uncle who was killed. But as we were talking, they had, a, they had a daughter, and she must have been about 13, 14 years old. And she kept wanting to say something. And, you know, the, the, the mother kept shaking her head and, and pushing her back, pushing her back so she can say but uh, to this girl's credit, she was not going to be denied. And she said, I, I have to tell you what happened to me. And she said, um, so these people, they chased me. And they kept chasing me and chasing me. And I said, and what happened? Did they catch you? She said, yes. And they did bad things to me. Well, I got to tell you, I... I don't want to help someone relive a terrible thing like that. But it was very clear that she was gang raped. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, Tanyal Kushakshin talks with human rights activist Richard Benkin about how he came to devote his life to the plight of Hindus and other minorities in Bangladesh, as well as what he's personally seen visiting Hindu refugees living in both West Bengal and Bangladesh itself. Hello, everyone. My name is Tanyal Kushakjian. I am the Director of Public Policy for the Hindu American Foundation in Washington, D.C. And today uh, we'll be speaking with Dr. Richard Benkin. Uh, he will be our guest. Uh, he is a independent scholar, researcher, and human rights activist. Uh, he has testified on Capitol Hill uh, and had conversations with uh, ambassadors uh, and world leaders on uh, Bangladesh's Hindus, uh, the Hindu population uh, and community in Bangladesh. Uh, he is the author of A Quiet Case of Ethnic Cleansing, The Murder of Bangladesh's Hindus. Uh, it was uh, published in 2012, and in it he provides verified evidence of anti-Hindu atrocities in Bangladesh and the government's complicity in them and the rest of the world's deliberate silence about it. Uh, he holds a doctorate from the University of Pennsylvania and has held a number of faculty and business positions uh, and currently sits on a number of boards and regularly serves, as uh, I said earlier, an expert witness in U.S. asylum cases involving South Asian refugees. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Benkin, uh, for joining us today. 
My pleasure, sir. So uh, let me uh, let's can you tell me a little bit about your background um, and history and human rights work? How did you uh, start to get into um, your focus on human rights? How did you know that was something you wanted to do with your life and career? Thank you. Uh, well, in part, there's always been an element of, the, of that. Uh, and it, beyond, it goes back to my childhood. I was born not that many years after the uh, Nazi concentration camps were discovered, uh, which involved the murder of millions of uh, my fellow Jews. And so obviously that was a, something that was pretty important as I was growing up. and. With all that I was reading and learning and the people I was talking to who experienced these things, I came to the conclusion that the real reason the Holocaust was possible was not the Nazis. Oh, they're terrible. There's a special place in hell for all of them, to be sure. But they weren't the reason why it was possible. The reason why it was possible was that millions of good Europeans and others allowed it to happen. They sat by while their neighbors were dragged away in the night. And I promised myself, I just couldn't be that way. You know, uh, we come out of the Holocaust with the phrase, never again. Well, never again. Sure, it meant we were never again going to let that happen to us. But it also meant we would never sit back while it happened to someone else. And so that really animates me and motivates me more than anything else. With regard, however, to what I'm doing, it really started a little after uh, the turn of this century. I was uh, sitting at my desk when I, I had always been very heavily involved in, in uh, the Zionist movement and blogging for Israel. And one day I was sitting, I, I, I got up early, I, I sat at my desk, I, oh, I turned on my computer, there was an email that I didn't recognize. Now, normally, I would just summarily delete the email, but I didn't do that. And it's a good thing I didn't because the email was from a Bangladeshi journalist, a Muslim, by the way. And he wrote to me saying, you know, the people in my country get nothing but biased news about Israel. I've read your stuff. Can you help me? get good objective sources so I can give that to my people. I, my job as a journalist. And so we worked together and we were really making progress. He helped me get published inside Bangladesh and I got him good sources of information. Even the prime minister uh, was reading our stuff. So we arranged for him to go speak to a group in Israel. Now what I know you know, Tanya, is that Bangladesh still does not recognize Israel and certainly didn't in 2003 when we were doing this. So we arranged for him to go fly from Dhaka to Bangkok, pick up the papers he needed to go to Israel, then go from Bangkok to Israel and make his speech and return home. What we didn't know was that the uh, Bangladesh intelligence was keeping close tabs on him. and They were not going to let this happen. In fact, as he was walking towards a plane, security forces grabbed him, rifled through all his information, 
have all his belongings, took his uh, computer. Uh, back then he had disks and things like that. Seized them all and threw them into a cell that they had in the uh, airport in Bangladesh. And they kept them there incommunicado for hours. And uh, in the Dhaka a lot, it can get pretty hot and uncomfortable there. So I can only imagine what it was like. And I know uh, my, my, uh, my, my colleague was dehydrated. Anyway, hours later, they went to move him from the airport jail to the cantonment center in, in, inside, in, in Dhaka. Well, by then, word had leaked out of his capture. And so a number of people got to the airport, including his brother. And as they were taking my friend away, he yelled out to his brother and said, please call Dr. Bacon in America. Ask him to please help me. Well, the fact is, especially to consider what I first told you, how do you turn your back on that? You, you, you just can't. And so I did what I know how to do, because that's what we all do. We do what we know. So I got back on the computer and I just started sending emails everywhere, especially to people who I thought might have a little more influence than I did. But the key is, I just didn't stop. Once you start, you can't stop. I did it again and again and again. And finally, it came to the attention of the man who was then my congressman, later became senator, that's Mark Kirk, uh, since retired from the Senate, Illinois. And uh, Mark was really taken by the case, and he helped me. And uh, after 17 months of imprisonment, not a long time, because my friend was actually charged with capital crimes, blasphemy, treason, and, and sedition. But after 17 months, we actually got him released. I remember I was actually on my way to a synagogue that day. Phone rang. I pick it up and I hear, hello, my brother, I'm free. Well, I, I, I just couldn't believe it. And, and anyone who's been in that kind of situation knows it's a feeling you just can't duplicate. And, and at that moment, I determined that this is what I was going to dedicate myself. You knew that was your calling. Absolutely. That's great. That's a, that's a, that's a wonderful story. And what year was that? You said around 2000? Well, we started doing it in 2000. We got pretty active in 2003. I believe he was released. He was arrested and then released in, after 17 months. With him, so your focus on Bangladesh has been about 20 years now. Um, and you've traveled extensively there. So what, uh, can you talk a little bit about your travels there um, in the beginning days? Um, you know, maybe how that changed uh, or things changed as you continue to go back uh, over the last 20 years. Um, and, uh, and, and the, the one thing I want you to, to also tell me is why Bangladesh? Why, why was that? It's just because <laughs> uh, just you got an email or um, uh, was there, uh, there was something more there too? Yeah. Well, I got It's funny you mentioned why Bangladesh, because you can imagine I didn't do it for the popularity. I didn't do it because people would say, oh, there's our, man, I want to hear more about Bangladesh. And you're, you're in Chicago, which um, isn't the, the, the largest hub of, of Bangladeshi refugees in the United States, you know, for Dr. Menkins in Chicago. For those of you who are listening, he was talking about uh, former Congressman and former Senator Mark Kirk from the, the, the great state of Illinois, uh, the land of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and so uh, wanted to, uh, to, to make sure our listeners know, unfortunately, Mark Kirk is not longer in the Senate. Uh, 
but he was a great human rights champion. Um, but so, so why Bangladesh, Richard? Before I go, I want to let you know, I didn't know about the uh, Bangladeshi refugee diaspora here and, and until um, my daughter went to school in Brooklyn and there's a fantastic cheesecake restaurant uh, that's not, wasn't that far from her college uh, called Junior's. And in fact, I believe uh, Chuck Schumer said that Junior's was the best cheesecake. He gets his favorite cheesecake place. Anyway. So I went, to, so I went to Junior's to, to buy a cheesecake, which is what you do when you're not a part of Rome. And all the people serving were Bangladeshis. You know, I expect, well, New York Jewish cheesecake, right? No, they were all Bangladeshis. And of course, I talked to them because I was already involved. And I learned about the large Bangladeshi diaspora. So, but why, but, but why Bangladesh? And quite frankly, the answer is, because someone spoke up, because someone asked me, and because that person gave me something specific that I could contribute to, and then worked with me. So it was really a mutual endeavor. Now, at that time, and for several years, the Bangladeshi government refused to allow me into the country. Then in 2007, which was one of those transition times, the uh, BNP government, the Bangladesh National Party, gave up control as according to the constitution in October and in, to a uh, caretaker. And in January, they were supposed to hold elections, January 1907. And that's when I came to Bangladesh, Bangladesh uh, because during that transition, the people there said, okay, fine. There's no leader, there's no government right now. We can get you a visa. You can go in and see your friend. And I, and I went. And ironically, while I was there was when Bangladesh had, a, had that military coup in 2007. Elections were canceled. Uh, but that was, that was uh, the first time I ever went because they had not allowed me uh, to go. And that particular visit was really two, two things that, that uh, dominated. One, I got to actually see my friend, embrace my friend and then meet others. It was very interesting how many people I was able to meet. There was something that happened that I considered life-changing for me. While I was there, I heard lots of chatter about terrible things happening to Hindus in particular in Bangladesh. And I just kind of filed it in the back of my mind. But then when I returned home to Chicago, there was a fax waiting for me. And those were the days when we had fax machines, too. <laughs> and the fax read, Hello, Dr. Bankin. I'm a Hindu. My I, I'm Hindu living near Kolkata. My parents brought me from Bangladesh when I was nine years old. My people are dying there. Please save us. Although, believe me, I don't, I don't have an opinion of myself that I can save anyone like that. But again, it was the same thing. How do you turn your back on that? How do you just, how do you read such a heartfelt plea about such a terrible situation? And remember, I had heard things about it, you know, when I was in Bangladesh. How do you turn your back on it? Well, you just can't. And so it was at that point that I really started learning about 
Bangladesh, and in particular about Hindus in Bangladesh. Uh, and that really changed my life because from that point forward, uh, with the exception of what one does as a responsible husband and father and citizen of one's own country, this is what has dominated my life. And this is the thing that I, that I, I lay awake at night thinking about. And this is how, this, this is the issue that I keep thinking, I said, now, how can we really move the needle and change things? So that happened in 2007. But once the Awami League took office a year later, you know, when the military, when the military uh, gave up power, they had elections, the Awami League took over. Again, the Bangladeshi government refused to let me in the country. So for years, instead of going to Bangladesh, what I would do is I would go to, uh, I, I, I would spend my time in India, primarily throughout Bengal, and including, especially northern Bengal. And I met with a lot of communities of Bangladeshi Hindu refugees who had settled in Bengal. And what, what were some of those cities uh, that, you, um, that you visited, cities or villages in Bengal? Well, the, you know... Just to give a picture and describe some some of the imagery for our listeners, uh, yeah. what were, and what were these conditions like? Okay. The cities they were all centered like around um, the, the the area was like around Shilguri uh, um, and then the Chicken's Neck. On top of that, Islampur, which is below Shilguri. Later, I started going to places like uh, Malda, and uh, even places in the Kolkata area, um, like Diamond Harbor. Uh, a lot of the villages hardly had names. I remember meeting a group of refugees that were living in an old railroad station off a road in uh, northern in northern Bengal. Um, so there were there were just a, a number of small villages, and quite frankly, at this point, I don't remember the you know most of the smaller villages' names. But as you can see, they were kind of spread out: um, Siliguri, Islampur, Chikmagalur. Uh, they're all northern Bengal. Um, Malda's closer to central, and uh, then again, there were a lot of places uh, near Kolkata, uh, north and south, 24 Parganas, uh, around Kolkata. There's some uh, very large uh, communities there where uh, uh, refugees fled to and, and have been settled. And what did you see there? Okay, what I found were people who we're beaten down pretty badly. You know, I sometimes get frustrated because I feel that people aren't doing enough for this, but I would never feel that way about the refugees themselves. They were beaten down. People told me about the worst situations, about people being killed, about their, their homes being invaded and then being thrown out, being invaded by neighbors. And, you know, that kind of resonated with me for what happened to my people during World War II. And it's funny, so they came to India and Quite frankly, in Bengal, they didn't seem to have much hope. They were afraid to do much. They were forced to leave whenever someone coveted the land that they had settled on. And there were more stories about atrocities than uh, one would expect. I, I, I have to tell you, I spent, I've spent more time speaking to women who were gang raped than anyone should ever have to. Worse, far worse than that, though is the women who had to experience that. Um, I mean, these are, these are life-changing experiences. You just can't go back to a workaday world and forget about it. One time I remember, a lot of times people were fearful of being too forthcoming 
about things that were happening because they were afraid of some collusion between the West Bengal government and the, uh, you know, Bangladeshis on the other side of the border. And they, I think they had some uh, reason to be that way. So I remember one day I was in Shilagori and I said, look, I got to talk to some people who are willing to tell me about recent events. So after a time, someone came back to my room and said, come, let's go. We got in our little van, drove up a road north of Shilagori and pulled off to the side because someone else had, you know, had prearranged to meet us at that point. We got to the point and the, uh, the, the, the gentleman we met asked me to get in the back of his motorcycle. Before he did, by the way, I, I carried a camera. I, just, I always took pictures and I recorded the testimonies that, that people gave me. He said, put your camera away. Uh, certainly he did not want there to be a chance that someone would know where we were actually going and where, where these people were, were hiding. We got me. We got on the on the, on the uh, motorcycle, drove off the road, and uh, if, you're, if you're familiar with uh, with with Bengal, you know you had the, we had the rice paddies on one side and the raised areas in the middle, and that's what we drove on. And finally, we passed the rice paddies and came to a little settlement. They took me to this one family, and uh, you know I got I I I, I got to be able to get through this without uh, tearing up. Um, so I met with his family and they started telling me they, they had crossed over from Bangladesh only 22 days earlier. So the things they were telling me had just occurred. And they told me about how their little plot of land, their little home and farm was invaded by a large number of their neighbors, their Muslim neighbors. And they were, they, they were thrown off. Uh, the father who was there had been beaten pretty severely. You could still see the, you know, the, the, the remnants of that beating. The, they tell me about uh, an uncle who was killed. But as we were talking, they had, a, they had a daughter, and she must have been about 13, 14 years old. And she kept wanting to say something. And, you know, the, the, the mother kept shaking her head and, and pushing her back, pushing her back so she can see but uh, to this girl's credit, she was not going to be denied. And she said, I, I have to tell you what happened to me. And she said, um, so these people, they chased me. And they kept chasing me and chasing me. And I said, and what happened? Did they catch you? She said, yes. And they did bad things to me. Well, I got to tell you, I... I don't want to help someone relive a terrible thing like that, but it was very clear that she was gang raped. And I was able to get little bits of confirmation of that. And I went back to my hotel room and let's see, it was 2009. My daughter was about a little older, maybe a year or two older. And, you know, again, when you experience something and no, and no, and then I learned Things like that happen to people, to Hindus in Bangladesh. And the people that do it get away with it. They're never prosecuted. Well, again, it only told me I had to redouble my efforts. So 
still I was barred from the from Bangladesh until uh, 2013, when uh, to the credit of people uh, at the Bangladeshi Embassy in Washington, they would give me six month visas uh, or things like that. Until finally last year, I think it was they gave me a ten year multiple entry visa, which surprised the hell out of me. So you were banned, then allowed, um, and then banned again, and then now allowed again. <laughs> I'm allowed to. Yeah, I, 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 I really believe. I, I really think uh, the, you know the people in the government uh, kind of know it's to their interests not to be an obstacle. Um, it looks obviously it looks like they have something to hide. I'm a I have a big mouth and I don't shut up. And I just as with Mark Kirk. I mean, I go to Washington a lot, and I would knock on every door. I would tell every staff person and sometimes the senator and member. And I think the Bangladeshi government realized that, you know, let, let's work with this guy. Well, work with this guy is kind of fun, but at least they let me in the country. And uh, so, yeah, so they, they I, in fact, let's see, I think it was 2018, maybe 2018 or 2019. So I get it. I, 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 I had been in India. I land in Dhaka. I'm lucky enough to be one of the first people, you know, to, to, uh, to customs. Uh, so I get out rather speedily. Right. And things look like they're going to be okay until my name must've been on some kind of list. Some, some officer there starts questioning me rather, rather net with rather nasty tone. Who are you going to see? Why are you here? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, look, I'm not a kid. I'm, I'm not going to naively just uh, tell this person who I'm going to see because I might never get to see them. I, you know, I, I have to be concerned about the, the people I work with in these countries. So, so we just went back and forth and back and forth. And again, I'm kind of, uh, kind of a pain in the neck sometimes. So uh, I see the line in back of me is getting long and it is hot. And anyone who's ever been to that airport knows it's not well air conditioned. It is hot. It's uncomfortable. People are on long flights. They want to get through customs. And I'm not, let, I, I'm not moving. The officer says, come, come, let, let's, let's, let's move over here. And I refused. I said, no, <laughs> we're going to settle this right here, right now. Anyway, we went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Finally, I said to him, I'm going to clean this. I'm going to clean up my language out of respect for uh, HAF and, and your audience. Uh, but I said to him, after he asked me one more question, I said, look, I've told you every, everything I'm going to tell you. I'm not telling you anything else. So you have three choices. Put me on a plane back to India, arrest me, or let me the blank out of this airport. And it turned out to be the third thing. The point is, though, in the intervening time, I was able to call someone at the Bangladeshi embassy in Washington, who I'd been working with, and basically just spewed all kinds of venom about what was happening here. And I know that one of the people at the embassy is part of their intelligence service. So uh, intelligence kind of intervened and told that guy to, you know, let it go. So the government does seem to realize it's in their interest to let me in. So now you talked about your your trips there, the, the, the persecution um, and human rights atrocities that you've witnessed and, and have heard firsthand from the victims. 
can you talk, can you take us back in history a little bit to how some of this started? Um, because this isn't new. This persecution has been going on uh, for many years now over and over. Um, and it's evolved um, to the point we are today. So can you perhaps talk a little bit about the history of this persecution? How did we get here? Um, uh, you know, we're coming up uh, on the 50th anniversary next year um, in about four months time. It's the 50th anniversary of the Hindu genocide in Bangladesh um, in 1971. And so uh, can you give us a little bit of that um, historical lens and, and bring our listeners uh, to today um, to, to, just to help them have a better understanding? To begin with, I think it would be a mistake to somehow try and say the problem is the Bangladeshi people even a bigger mistake or at least as big a mistake to say that the problem is Islam. I don't think that's the case. I really believe the problem and what's led to all this is the Western world, world's acceptance of this and refusal to acknowledge it as the atrocity that it is. And I'm going to kind of take you through a little bit of what I mean. In 1971, we know Bangladesh uh, had their war of independence and broke away from Pakistan. We also know that it wouldn't have been successful without the intervention of the Indian Army. And that kind of set a certain set of beliefs that became, that became articles of faith in the Western world, particularly among the diplomatic corps. And that is that, look, Bangladesh, some moderate country. They broke away from that, that bad old Pakistan. And so they got to be different to Pakistan. Look, India helped them out. They got to love Hindus too. Um, and the Bangladeshi constitution, if you read it, oh, it sounds beautiful. It guarantees religious freedom for everyone. But it never has been applied that way in practice. The, look, the, the, the fact that Bengal was divided twice, by the way, once by the British in, I think it was 1902, um, uh, but more permanently, of course, uh, in the uh, 1947 uh, partition of, of uh, what was then called British India. The partition itself, and I'm looking at this as an outsider, but from my point of view, the partition itself says that uh, on the basis of religion, people can't live, you know, people have to be divided. They can't, they can't live in the same polity. And so what happens to people who ended up on the wrong side? And we're talking about Hindus primarily in Bangladesh what was then East Pakistan, Bangladesh, and, and Pakistan. Uh, I think that sort of, uh, you know, set the, the tone that, uh, you know, they really didn't belong in those countries. Uh, so I think that's part of it. But I think what happened afterwards is a belief, a belief system grew among Western nations. And I, I mentioned Western nations only because Western nations had the most influence in terms of how, you know, how things were going to be reacted to or belief system grew up that, well, we have, you know, we, we have a moderate country as opposed to a, a radical country. And uh, we also know there's a lot of distaste, which I absolutely disagree with, uh, among, some, among some groups uh, for, for India. And so this was this kind of a counterpoint. We have a democratic Muslim state. And, and, and Structurally, it is democratic. Effectively, it isn't really. 
But it also meant that the Bangladeshi government was allowed to say, we're not doing anything wrong. We're not doing anything to our, to our Hindus. Because, uh, in fact, they're not the ones that did it. The government doesn't go around like, uh, like the Gestapo or the Janjaweed in uh, Sudan. But what the government does, which is equally, equally culpable, is that they never prosecute these cases. But when someone tries to call them, they say, we're not doing it. These, these are uh, radicals. These are Taliban, these horrible people. And, you know, that has nothing to do with, uh, with the government of Bangladesh. And I think that willingness to excuse these atrocities more than anything else, is what's brought us to where we are today and what will bring us to a much worse place if we don't change it. Now, can you talk a little bit about um, the beginning uh, of Bangladesh's um, early years after independence and then some of the uh, terrorist activities that have been uh, emanating um, Jamaat-e-Islami and uh, potential collaboration with uh, Pakistan terror networks? Um, targeting Hindus and um, even Buddhists and others? Yes. We do know that there was a divide in Bangladesh uh, during the War of Independence. And there were radical groups uh, and uh, that, that, that collaborated with Pakistan. Some of them ended up stranded in uh, the Indian state of Bihar. We know, right? And, and uh, a lot of them um, are, are, you know, were, remained in Bangladesh. And... With the ascendancy of certain of certain groups of power, whether it was uh, the uh, first military coup, whether it was the Urshad dictatorship when Islam was made the official state religion of uh, what's supposed to be a secular country, and then later the Bangladesh National Party, National Party, um, these groups were empowered. They were kind of set free. Now I can tell you that over years, what I've seen, and and by the way, and part of, part of their philosophy is that. Uh, this is part of the Muslim mind should not have any non-Muslims in. Uh, certainly Hindus are the biggest target, you know, the, the, the largest popul- population there, but um, large, sorry, the largest minority population. But we also know that Buddhists, Christians, and especially indigenous peoples in the Chittagong Hill tracks have been brutalized as well. Now, over the years, First, it was assumed, well, they, were, they, became, they, they became part of the ruling coalition. Mishmat became part of the ruling coalition when the Bangladesh National Party was in power. And uh, that, that was even in the early part, earlier part of this century. But then the belief grew up that, well, all right, look, they're, they're associated with that party. That'll never happen again unless that party comes into power. But that has not been the case. During the aborted 2007 elections, Sheikh Hasina and the Awami League sat down with a, a, a small splinter group, but an influential radical group called the Caliphate Andalan Majlis. And they signed a, a concord where the Caliphate Majlis would support the Awami League, be part of their coalition. And the Awami League essentially would let them go. And, and the thing that was especially scary then was that if, in fact, they end up getting the uh, you know, education portfolio, they could, they could mandate some, some pretty nasty uh, elements of education in Bangladesh. So in the meantime, the more you go there, the more you, you've seen that radicals have taken over more and more areas of, uh, the, uh, of the social structure, whether now it's, it's a certainly education, banking, police, not all the police, by the way, but certainly in some, some elements of it. And, and more and more. And, and, and so 
they have a chance they have a chance to really call the shots. And in addition to that, the, 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 under, the belief that oh, they're only bad if the BNP is in power is, is utter nonsense. They are a significant political interest group and have significant numbers of votes to bring. And the Iwami League covets those votes just as much as a BNP. And so I think what, what bring, you know, brings us to the point is, again, the, 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 the fact that, that people, too many people still believe that the oh, the Iwami League is a good party. Uh, they would never have anything to do with this, but they do. And we've seen evidence that most recently in the last election, when uh, uh, Shegasina, even though she didn't need the help uh, uh, to win, uh, met with these groups, stood up and, and defended uh, anti-blasphemy laws in Bangladesh, which, of course, are used for, for social control. Wow. Um, well, thank you for bringing us up to today. I wanted to ask you specifically, because I know in our conversations over the last few months, um, you know, the world's been struck by the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and this uh, event has a given cover to autocrats and authoritarian regimes um, and bad actors, bad guys around the world to uh, to do what they do, uh, to spread their their hate, their intolerance, their bigotry, uh, commit human rights violations, religious freedom violations, invade other countries. Um, you know, uh, with the pandemic, bad guys are emboldened. And we know that these things are happening, bad things are happening all across the world. But um, you were in Bangladesh right before uh, the, the effective shutdown here in the United States, which was in late February, early March, I think it was the second week of March. Um, and you had just gotten back from, from Bangladesh. Can you, uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, what you saw, uh, how you just came back and what you've been hearing, uh, about in Bangladesh since, the COVID-19 uh, lockdown uh, took place in that part of the world. I was told that if I waited any longer to leave for home, I'd probably have to go home on a military transport that uh, domestic airlines wouldn't be flying too much longer. Um, at the t- so, uh, yeah, I really just made it. And, and uh, there had already been some cases here in Chicago. There weren't a lot in uh, Bangladesh and India at that time, uh, but everyone knew it was coming. So I was I, I was so relieved to get on a plane and, and get back home, figuring that yeah, you know, look, I'm I'm no different than anyone else who's listening to this or you, Tanyel. I figured if I'm going to get this this uh, terrible disease, this pandemic, I want to be home with my family, you know. And um, but I, but but I did get home with my family. But eventually, of course, we know that uh, that South Asia was hit uh, pretty hard with the pandemic, regardless of social distancing and other restrictions that were placed by the government on the people of Bangladesh, I kept getting information from my reliable sources that these attacks were occurring. And you know, there's no social distance, no social distancing when someone gang rapes someone else. So given the fact that I know how endemic this attempt to eliminate Hindus is inside Bangladesh. I thought to myself, wow, if I could show people here just how committed some groups are to eliminating Hindus in Bangladesh, 
such that they would risk being infected with COVID-19. And just how committed the government is to letting it happen such that they would enforce these social distancing regulations on others, but never on people who violated them to attack Hindu. I said, I thought that would that should kind of wake people up to just how serious this is and how committed you know Bangladesh is. And so So and how often did it, has this been happening in, in COVID? Can you give our, our listeners an idea um, of how the uh, human rights violations and um, the attacks uh, on Hindus has increased? Uh, since the COVID-19. Can you tell us a little bit about your trip before and what's happened since specifically? Well, first of all, you, you know how bad it's going. I know uh, you and the rest of HAF have been very actively involved in identifying these things, uh, such as the horrendous situation in Camilla not long ago. Um, but I, yeah, I would say, so yeah, while I was there, I look, the government tries to do a pretty good job of uh, not letting things happen too much around me. Uh, but yeah, they were happening. I, I uh, the year before I was in uh, Khuna, uh and uh, through the villages in that part, and it was pretty tough. These things were happening all. The then when I look, when I looked at uh, at what was happening afterwards, because yeah, I mean, you're there, you see this stuff. You see, you see the the charred homes. You you. See, when you start talking with, with Hindus, how all of a sudden there are ominous gatherings around you, maybe a bit of a ring around you. And by the way, the government always has someone uh, following me, uh, except when I can uh, lose them, which I do pretty regularly because I, look, I got to tell you, the, the people I talk to have legitimate fears of what's going to happen if the government finds out what they do. Anyway, so it was bad, but I kept hearing it getting worse and worse and worse. So I said, I'm going to take a look real closely at Bangladesh's first lockdown period for COVID. And that was uh, March 26th from May 30th. And, and obviously, normally I, I can see things for myself. I couldn't do that this time because I, uh, I was here and not in Bangladesh. But I, I took a look, maybe about 125, 135 different allegations. And these are multi-crime incidents. And I have pretty exacting uh, standards uh, for verifying things. Uh, if I've seen it myself, that's, that's clear enough, obviously, but that wasn't the case in any of these. I have to have at least two independent eyewitnesses. And I want to end up, I want to identify, again, emphasize the independence of those witnesses. If there are, me if there's media coverage, that helps. But I look for all sorts of ways to uh, verify them. I also look for inconsistencies in the different stories I hear from different, or the different testimonies I hear from different people. So I looked at about 125, 135 perhaps, and I eliminated a bunch, uh, not because they didn't happen, but because they, I, I just couldn't uh, verify them to that extent. And I ended up, so you want to know the frequency. I ended up with 85 multi-crime incidents. These are serious crimes. I'm not talking about trespassing. We're talking about murder, gang rape, child abduction, forced conversion, destruction of, of mandirs, um, and land grabbing, on and on. I, so I, I came up with 85 of these. 
These 80, these were 85 serious incidents that occurred in a 66 day period. Now I got to tell you, if you, if you, if you read my book, uh, during the Iwami League's first year or so, uh, we were talking about maybe uh, one and a half that I could verify a week or something like that during the first couple of years. But 85 in 66 days, that is mind boggling. And can we, can any of us imagine that? And I have to tell you, several of them, but several of them, I could call, I couldn't call anything except anti-Hindu pogroms, where they were attacks on the entire community. 85 multi-crime incidents in 66 days. All these incidents, they were specifically anti-Hindu. They weren't just crimes where the victim happened to be Hindu. These were targeted against him, targeted against Hindus. Uh, and the government refused to do anything about it. They did not prosecute the, the, these crimes. Oh, they did prosecute a few crimes, but these crimes, they prosecuted Hindus who were accused of uh, blaspheming, or I think the, the law goes hurting the sentiments of a uh, religious uh, group, uh, blaspheming because they allegedly insulted the, the prophet uh, Muhammad uh, on Facebook. And it's all nonsense. I know at least one of the people where I investigated this person didn't have the skills to do that. Well, that that's that's unbelievable. Uh, we've we've been hearing the reports, um, and and it's it's amazing that you've been able to um, independently identify um, uh, at least eighty five. It looks like there's more. It sounds like there's more incidents, and I'm sure there are um, than than what we than what is reported and and what you get. Um, but things are are getting pretty bad uh, in Bangladesh now, especially under COVID. They're getting worse. And so what, what can we, what can, what can some of the, your listeners do um, to bring attention uh, to this, to, to raise awareness, uh, to have a, an impact? You know, you're, you're a results oriented guy. Yes. Uh, you, you seem to get results uh, and, and have. So what can, what can our listeners do? Um, because this is happening on our watch. This is happening right now. Well, I can tell you a few things. First, uh, like you, Tanya, uh, I'm an American citizen. I believe that American citizens, either as groups or as individuals, have a right to petition their government to actually take action. Our government has a history of acting for human rights, even if it's not in our own immediate national interests. And so, for instance, that um, analysis I have with the 85 crimes and 60 or 85 incidents in 66 days, State Department has that now. And it hopefully will be part of their next human rights report. There are more and more people who get that. Um, I would say if anyone feels comfortable, contact your senator, congressman, uh, let them know that this is a serious incident. And, you know, uh, I've been able to do this not with Bangladesh, but what, with other issues, been able to say, hey, my family's involved. In it. My family's over there. They're the ones at risk. I mean, if you can do that, that's great. Now, we're going to have several initiatives, whether it's the different things that HAF is doing or some of the things that I might be doing. And, and I think having a stable of people who are ready to make those phone calls in support of legislation, whether it's a, 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 a law or a resolution, that would be very important. So I would suggest, you know, maybe perhaps, and, and Tanya, tell me if I'm being uh, presumptuous here, perhaps people who haven't already become part of the HAF database, let you know, let HAF know that they're willing to uh, contact their uh, senators or members of Congress uh, when needed, because quite frankly, 
this is serious stuff. I mean, if we don't do anything about, there's not going to be any Hindus left in Bangladesh. And it's already, it's already bleeding over into West Bengal. That's, that's one thing we can all do. Let everyone, everyone know who doesn't know about this. You know, I got to tell you something. I talk to Americans, even educated Americans, not with any ties to South Asia, for instance. And they don't have a clue. I remember asking educated people, about Bangladesh, and I'd say, oh, isn't that part of India? I don't know if they were getting any clues of Bangalore, but they just didn't know. They just didn't know. He'd be, the, the level of ignorance we have in this country, look at the last election. How much discussion was there about foreign policy? Don't shut up. Keep talking. And if you need information, get in touch with one of us, and we can provide it. So again, that whole educational thing, that's one thing. Perhaps, uh, you know, uh, someone could uh, come and talk to uh, your kid's school. Besides that, and again, it's, it's uh, when, when, when we have legislative legislation pending, I think we really need to mobilize all decent people to, to let their elected officials know that they're behind that. Mike Pence, when he was the um, congressman, a congressman from Indiana used to say, and I, I, he was absolutely right, he said, you know, if a congressman, we're talking about congressman, if a congressman gets five phone calls from constituents about a particular issue, that person's going to start taking it seriously. Because they figure if five people are, you know, exercised enough to make that call, then there's got to be a lot more, and I really need to get on top of it. So that, that, that's one step. But there's something else. I want to Give a, give a little example of what I mean here. And I think this is pretty important. So I was just doing a lot of reading on the Crimean War. Very interesting. The uh, Allied armies, Britain, France, Turkey, spent months and months and months laying siege to the uh, city of Sebastopol in the Crimea. And no matter what they did, nothing was happening. Not, the Russians were not leaving. And, and there was just, they weren't able to get it done until until they won a naval battle in the Sea of Azov. And why is that important? Because the Sea of Azov was the only pipeline that could resupply the residents of Sebastopol. In other words, a direct military confrontation, yeah, not really what you're looking for. But by cutting them off, they, they were able to actually uh, turn the tide of that siege. Similarly, when the United States entered World War II, People knew that it was pretty much over. It was just a matter of when. Why? Not because of, of our military might, but because of our immense industrial capacity. So, for instance, uh, in, in the Pacific, when uh, the Japanese uh, scored victories against the United States, we had the industrial capacity to replace those ships and planes. When we did the same to Japan, they did not. And, and that, that really is an important fact. So why am I bringing that up? Because... You know, Bangladesh has been pretty, uh, pretty impressed with itself over the last several years, and I think they have a right to be. They actually have, been, have graduated from the group of less developed countries. Their economy really is chugging along with some, some very impressive numbers. However, their economy is also inordinately dependent on one thing, and that one thing is their ready-made garment exports. And who's their biggest customer? The United States. Second biggest customer, by the way, is the EU, particularly Germany. Remember I told you about that when I was in Bangladesh 2007, there was a military coup? They only acted 
when they were afraid that the, the UN was going to intervene and uh, cut off the second part, the second pillar of their economy, and that's the millions of dollars they get in peacekeeping funds. Who's the biggest funder of peacekeeping funds? Well, if you're a taxpayer like I am here in the United States, you know that you are. So in other words, we're the biggest customer for their garments, we're the biggest funder of their peacekeeping receipts without either, or even with a significant dent in either of them, their economy is in trouble. And the politicians who are ruling at the time are going to be thrown out of office, and they certainly don't want that. In other words, the way to get Bangladesh at this point is to, is not to buy, um, by the way, I'm not using the word boycott, not to buy their goods, to petition our government, to start objecting to their keeping peace for the UN when they can't keep peace at home and things like that. That's how we do it. And that's something I hope that the HAF and I can work on in the coming months. But in terms of your listeners, just don't, don't, buy, don't buy your clothes if they got a made in Bangladesh label. Well, that's a, a, a great way to, to conclude uh, so that our listeners now have something that they can actually do, an actionable item. Um, if they were so compelled after listening to your stories and all the work and advocacy that you've done on behalf of the Hindu uh, community in Bangladesh. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Richard Benkin, author of A Quiet Case of Ethnic Cleansing, The Murder of Bangladesh's Hindus, uh, published in 2012. Uh, thank you, Dr. Benkin, uh, for joining us on the That's So Hindu podcast. My name is Tanya Kushakjan. Thank you very much for listening. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org slash donate.